Have you ever been challenged in a way that you know you cannot meet? Asked to do something you know that you're unable to do. Be confronted with an obstacle you know is too great for you to deal with. And it seems like oftentimes it takes something like that in order for us to recognize the emptiness and the lack that's within our own lives. We fill our lives with so many things and so many activities and so many um, opportunities to go and do and enjoy and participate in or have to work or whatever that our lives, uh, we never stop and think about what's going on. And suddenly you wake up and you see that many years have gone by. And in our relationship with God, nothing has changed. We're still saying the, the little table graces when we're 50 years old that we learned when we were a small child. And, you know, those kinds of things. Nothing wrong with those prayers. But there seems to be that there needs to be a moving on in our walk with the Lord. So, wants to stop and think a minute about some of the things that we confront in our own lives over which we have no control and no resources to meet. These are the things that draw us into the presence of the Lord. And I suppose it's true of almost everybody. When we first start seeking after the Lord, it's because we recognize uh, our lack and the great need that we have of His presence. But have you ever known somebody or maybe even been somebody in your family, the only time they ever talk to you is when they need something, you know? Uh, and you wonder about what kind of a relationship is that? Uh, I, I want to talk to you when I'm in trouble or I need something, uh, but other than that, I don't want to be bothered. I'm going to do my own thing, you do your own thing. And uh, we treat God that way a lot, don't we? And I think in the heart of God, there must be a longing for people who will long to be in his presence just because of who he is. Not because of our need, not because of the, of the difficulty, not because of the emptiness inside, but just to be in the presence of the Lord. To seek him for his own sake and for nothing else. Uh, so as we look this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 46 and I want to give a little historical perspective here it doesn't tell us but I think it uh, was written partly as a response to what took place in the book of Isaiah or you can read it in Kings or Chronicles it's uh, one of the few things that's repeated and between Kings and, and Isaiah, it's almost verbatim, um, three times the same event. But it's recorded three times. And so it's an important, significant thing. And we're talking about um, the attack upon um, Hezekiah from the Assyrians. And most of us know that um, that was an attack which they could not meet. The Assyrian army at that particular time had 
been able to overcome every major battle that they were in. They were successful. And there wasn't a country that they had come up against they, that they had not at that point been able to defeat and conquer. And uh, they had an incredible military machine. It was well-disciplined, well-equipped, well-trained, and these were experienced veterans. And they were a formidable group. And when they moved against a, a, a nation or country, it was just a matter of time. And so because of a series of events, they began to uh, attack down here in these what we would call biblical countries. They began coming from the north, and they're going to attack um, Syria and come on down and attack the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's about this time that the northern kingdom of Israel is going to drop out of history because of these people. And they finished with northern tribes, northern kingdom of Israel. Now they're moving into Judah. And at the point where Isaiah picks up the story, they have come in and they have conquered all of Judah except for the capital city. They had a couple of others, Lachish, and a couple of others, outposts. And they had been, uh, they could only communicate with, with signal fires, beacons, because uh, you'd send a runner and the runner would get captured. So they, and, and they actually have um, shards, ostraca, shards of pottery that they used to use to write notes on. And they have some that's, that, uh, in, that they found in Jerusalem and saying they've, the beacon fires have gone out from these outposts, which means they've been conquered and, and defeated. And so they, that lets Hezekiah know um, this is their Alamo. <laughs> you know, they are there and Assyria is coming and they have come and they have surrounded the whole city of Jerusalem. They are under siege and they've got nowhere to go and no one to help. They tried getting help from Egypt and that failed because Egypt was intimidated by Assyria and Assyria was later on going to come down and take Egypt. So this was, they were on their own. And you remember the challenge that the Rabshaka, that's the, the military leader, gave. He said, look, I'll give you the horses and chariots if you can provide riders for them. <laughs> and they didn't have the men. They didn't have the resources. They knew they were in trouble. They were encircled by 185,000 battle-hardened troops who knew what they were doing in siege warfare. And um, you can, if you get a chance to go to the British Museum in England, they have those things that the British uh, went and took from the <laughs> Middle East and brought them to the, into uh, London there. And on those, you've got huge walls, like panel after panel after panel of depictions carved in stone of them destroying cities. And you can could, you could see how they did it, the battering rams and the catapults and the whole thing. Well, all of that system was arrayed against Judah now, and they had no hope. And so they turned to God. And Hezekiah was a godly king, and he laid this out before God, and he said, God, everything they've said, none of the gods, and he issued this on a spiritual level as well as a military level, none of the gods have been able to help because they're not God. But you are. And we have no hope except through you. And he actually took the letter and he laid it out before God and he said, God, um, this is their threats and if you don't help, tomorrow it's going to happen. And God sent Isaiah and said, 
Don't worry about it. This is my battle, not yours. And the next morning, when they got up, 185,000 troops getting ready to storm the place in the morning. When the sun comes up, 185,000 dead men. Judah didn't fire one arrow. They didn't have one cavalry charge. They, had, they didn't do anything. God said, I will take care of this. So with that as a background, I want, us to, I want you to think about obstacles that are in your life right now. Mountains that seem immovable. Threats that you don't know how to, to deal with, whether they're external or whether they're just a weight and a burden that you don't know how to be rid of or something that has control of your life that you want to be free of and you don't know how. And you know that you don't have the resources. So this is from the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth. Um, that's not ice cream. It's not Alamode. It's <laughs> Alamoth. That's the... That's actually, literally, the uh, women singers, uh, young virgins, young, young women singing. So it's a high, high notes. Um, and he says, this is a song. So it's meant to be sung. And songs help us because as we, as we remember the tune and as we begin to sing, then we remember the message, don't we? We know the lyrics because we're singing it. This is something that was meant for public worship. They wanted to bring this out, the Korah, sons of Korah, that was part of the worship team. These were the guys who led all of Israel in their worship and praise of God, the sons of Korah and the sons of Asaph. These were the groups, the singers and the musicians. And so this is a song, and I'll read it, and we'll go back and talk about it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now this word selah, if you recall, it's in there. It's, um, it's like a pause. Uh, you're singing the song and you stop for a minute because the stop is so that you can stop and think about what you've just sung, the content of the message. Think about that, you could say it, right? And so, and they use that often to um, divide up the, the poem into stanzas, which is what they do here. But it's not just a, a, a literary device to indicate it. It's saying this is something you need to think about and meditate on and take to heart 
And then we can go on with our worship. So it says that, first of all, God is our refuge. Um, he's a refuge in the place of, of strength, a stronghold, a place we can run. He is our refuge and he is our strength. So one of the other Psalms puts it this way. Uh, my hiding place is in God. He is the one who protects and guards and watches over me. And have you ever been in trouble and it seems like our, our great need and you pray and, and what you get is silence? Ever happened? Oftentimes, what that does is it raises questions, doesn't it? And things don't change outwardly, and you've prayed, and all oh, you get silence, and you wonder maybe God doesn't hear, God doesn't care, and we think, God, I'm needing you now. Where are you? Well, the psalmist tells us. Um, God is our refuge and strength. Where is he? A very present help in trouble. He's our hiding place where people seek shelter and security from danger that's all around them. He is the one who watches over us. Literally, it says... In times of struggle and difficulty, we have found that God is there by experience. We have found that God is there. In the silence, it's, when our, it's a challenge to our faith, isn't it? When Hezekiah presented it before God, the threats of the enemy, God said, I will take care of this. When Hezekiah went to bed that night, nothing had changed. Nothing. And he knew that in the morning, those Assyrians, they were coming. They made it very clear and very evident. Uh, everything was set up. All they had to do was somebody say, go. And that was going to be the end of Judah. They knew that. He went to bed, and the threat was very real, and nothing had changed. When he woke up, it was an entirely different thing. And so the silence is a, it's an invitation. And earlier, um, with Hezekiah's grandfather, he had faced a similar situation, and God had told him, you'll trust in God or you won't trust anything. You'll trust God and make it through or you're not going to stand. You don't have a lot of options. And many times, that's where we are in our life, isn't it? Uh, I don't have the resources. I don't know. I can't deal with this. God, if you don't help me, I'm, it's, it's over. That's an opportunity. And God is saying, do you trust me? Is God able? So he's a very present help in trouble. And the next verse is very important. Therefore... We will not fear. And again, fear comes as, as a question about God. God, are you able, are you willing to deal with this situation? We know you're God. We know you can do great things. But 
Do you care enough about me in my present situation? We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waves, waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And so he says, Selah here, I want you to think about this, he says. God is there. He's present in our trouble. So we won't fear regardless of what it looks like outwardly. So oftentimes in prophetic literature, when it talks about mountains, it's talking about kingdoms, uh, political entities. Um, and when it's talking about the sea, oftentimes in, in uh, prophetic literature, and it's used over and over again, as chaotic turmoil of people. Uh, we would, we would uh, liken it to maybe um, a mob uncontrollable power and uh, force and it's bent on destruction and it's uncontrollable and it's coming for you. And so looked at in these terms, the mountains would be the mountain of Assyria facing Israel or Judah. And the sea would be the turmoil and the chaos of the attack that's coming. It's using poetic language and it does it often in, in the prophetic literature. I can give you uh, passages of scripture and we could read them uh, to show how this imagery is carried through. Um, all through books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Minor Prophets. It's carried through in the New Testament, particularly in prophetic literature, book of Revelation. It's in there a lot. So when you have the beast rising out of the sea, it may not be water that it's talking about. It's this mass of human people that are uncontrollable and um, not bowing to God or anybody else. And it's a very powerful, chaotic um, turmoil that's there. So he says, even though that's happening, we are not going to be afraid. Even though the mountains themselves tremble at the turmoil of the people. And then between verses 3 and 4, there is a great contrast. So it's talking about this chaotic um, movement of nations and peoples and destruction and it's coming. In contrast, verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And you get the idea, uh, this is a... a metaphor that's picked up in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden out of the Garden of Eden there was a river and then the river broke up into four parts but initially it was one river you're going to see it again in the book of Ezekiel you all are familiar with the valley of dry bones in chapter 37 uh, it's the same metaphor of the valley of dry bones is repeated in chapter 47 of Ezekiel and this time it's at Jerusalem and um, when God steps in, uh, Mount Zion is split open and there's a river that flows out from Zion, out from Jerusalem towards the Dead Sea. And as you read through Ezekiel there in chapter 47, you find that where this river runs into the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea becomes alive. It becomes sweet water and there's all these kinds of fish and along this river are trees that bring um, food and healing and the leaves are for the, are for the healing of the nations. 
So you've got this imagery going through here. You're going to see it again in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, about this river flowing out from the throne of God. And we have a prefigurement of that when Jesus is talking about those who are filled with the Spirit. He says, those who receive Christ and come to Him and the Holy Spirit comes, out of their inmost being flows rivers of living water. It's active, it's alive, it's a continuous spring that wells up. Um, and the result of that is life and health to everybody who drinks it. And so that's the image that he's giving here in chapter 46. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And again, um, as far as the people of Judah were concerned, with all their fears and all their preparations, getting ready to meet an attack that they know was going to end in their death or captivity, and they look out and all their enemies are defeated. Everyone. So he says, the nations rage. And again, this picks up on uh, verses 2 and 3 about the, the mountains and the, the, the sea foaming and all of that. The nations, literally the Gentiles, rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. And he picks up again from verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, very present help in trouble. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now verse 7 and verse 11 um, has a different word than refuge. It literally means a high place. It's a place where you can be safe. Literally what it says. It's above the tumult. It's a place of safety. God has picked us up above all of that. And notice again what he says. Lord of hosts is with us. What's that? God with us? Emmanuel, from Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, um, and picked up in the Gospel of Luke and applied to Jesus. God with us. He is the refuge. He is the one who makes us safe. He is the God who watches over us. And so he says, stop and think about that. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of God's armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our safety. Then the invitation goes out. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Um, there was a plague that went through and killed all those 185,000 Assyrians overnight. How many people of Judah died? They're right there, outside the wall. Plague's out there, but not in here. All those people are dead. We're all okay. So the scripture says God sent an angel, one, and 185,000 men died. And he's the Lord of hosts, the army of God. Look at the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. How does he do that? All of those who love war 
are not with us anymore. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. And then he says in verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. Literally what it means is back off and quit attacking God's people. It literally means the hands are hanging down limp to deceased from something to stop doing what you're doing and be still. So many times in our fear, we think, I need to do something. God said, be still. This is my fight. It's not yours. Not the first time he said that. Um, You remember when Israelites were coming out of Egypt um, and Pharaoh finally let them go after the ten plagues and after all the death and destruction, the ruination of his country, which had been the most, one of the most powerful of, of the time. And now everything was gone. And finally, after the Israelites left, the Egyptians looked around and said, wait a minute, <laughs> that's our slave labor. Who's going to do all the work? We need to go back and get those people and make them pay. And so they sent the armies with the chariots and all of that. And um, so God had led them out to the edge of the, of the Red Sea, and they're there, and the people are there. Uh, God's with them. I mean, there's a pillar of fire and a, a pillar of cloud, um, the fire at night and the cloud by day. And they look up, and here's these, here's these chariots bearing down on them. And they've got nowhere to go. They are hemmed in by water all around them. And all the people are coming to Moses and saying, Oh no, it would be better if we had died in Egypt than come out here in the wilderness to die. What's going to happen? And they're crying out and hollering and all of that. And God spoke to Moses and he said, uh, This is my fight, not yours. Um, you don't have to do a thing. Be still. And so the, pot, the pillar of fire that was in front of them leading them removed behind them and stayed there all night kept, kept the Egyptians from getting to the Hebrew people and in the morning God said um, what you got in your hand he said well I got the staff he said lift it up he lifted it up and the waters began to part and they walked through and after they had gone through uh, the Israelites had made it Egyptians came down chasing them so all these chariots are in the middle wall of water on either side God said, all the Israelites are saved? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and what he told them was, the Egyptians that you see today, they will trouble you no more. You will see them no more. And that great army, like what was going to happen hundreds of years later with Hezekiah, that whole army was wiped out. It didn't just stop there. There was a man by the name of Jehoshaphat. He was a godly king. And I think this is one of the key things is that um, these are God's people, not just in name, but these are people who are actively seeking after God. Um, Moses was, Hezekiah was, Jehoshaphat was a man like that. And um, if you look at Second Chronicles, you'll see a little bit about 
who this guy Jehoshaphat was. He's an important man because of what he was doing. And Second um, Chronicles chapter 17, Jehoshaphat is going to um, become king. And it says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat, I'm reading from verse 3, because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baal, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Did you get that? His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. These were the high places where they worship idols. And the third year of his reign, he sent out his officials. He gives you their names. And with them, the Levites, and he gives you their names. And it says, They taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. And they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Because they were afraid of Jehoshaphat? No. The fear of the Lord. Because this was a man who walked with God. Book of Proverbs puts it this way. When a man's, please, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Moses, as they were wandering in the wilderness, did not have to fear an attack from the Egyptians anymore. Hezekiah, because he turned to God and trusted him, did not have to worry about an attack from Assyria any longer. Now, you've got to keep in mind, the 185,000 Assyrian troops, that was only one of Sennacherib's armies. He had more, just as big. But he's not attacking them anymore. <laughs> and this is going to take place in Jehoshaphat's life as well. Uh, Jehoshaphat, if you'll remember, he's going to be attacked, unprovoked attack, by the nations around him. And he didn't have the resources, again, to meet that. He also goes to God, and God says, I'll, I'll deal with this. And God does. This tremendous um, deliverance by God. When Judah, the men of Judah, got to the battlefield, they found out that this coalition of their enemies had gotten in a fight with each other, and they killed each other to the last man. And so when Jehoshaphat got there, all the, there wasn't any enemy to fight. All they had to do was pick up the spoils, which they did. It took them three days just to pick up the loot that was left and carried it back, made an offering and praise and thank they were singing. And it's great because uh, what God had told Jehoshaphat is these armies are coming and I want you to, to get ready to go to battle. But at the front, I want you to put the worship team, the choir. This is going to be your vanguard when you go into fight. And they're going to be walking in front of the people, rejoicing, worshiping, praising God. Your love endures forever. And when they got there, they saw what that meant. And so then they sang all the way back. 
rejoicing and praising God. It's the same deal with um, Elijah uh, running from the threat of Jezebel. And when he gets to, finally gets to Mount Horeb and he meets God, literally what it says is there was absolute silence. After the earthquake, after the wind, after the fire, this deafening quiet. And Elijah recognized the presence of the Lord. So the Lord wasn't in the, wasn't in the earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the fire. Um, the Lord wasn't in the wind. But in the silence, he knew the presence of God. And so the writer of Psalm 46 says, Be still and know that I am God. Maybe the reason that we don't understand the presence of God as much as we would like is that we don't stop and wait in his presence enough. Now, I think oftentimes about our prayers, you know, in our desperation, if you're like me, you pray more often, more frequently, more fervently when I'm in trouble and I'm crying out to God, crying out to God, crying out to God, and, uh, you know, and God is trying to tell me something. (laughs) You need to be quiet so I can tell you what you're wanting to know, you know. And so it's that kind of a thing. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's the Lord of hosts who is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. You ever wonder about um, what it means when he talks about the God of Jacob? It's not just the God that Jacob worshipped. But if you read the closing chapters of Genesis, when Jacob is blessing, first of all, the sons of Joseph, and then later all of his kids, when Jacob is praying a blessing upon Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, he's the one where we first come across Jacob saying, the God who has been my shepherd my whole life long. What does the shepherd do? He watches over, he protects, he leads, he provides, he takes care of you when you're sick or when you've strayed, he goes looking for you and brings you back. He's the one who um, is in charge of your total care. And Jacob says, God who's been my shepherd my whole life. But when he says that, he's acknowledging God as shepherd, but he's also acknowledging his own place. God is the one who created us, not we ourselves. We are his sheep. And so we are acknowledging the shepherd. Jesus tells us when we know the shepherd, we hear his voice and we follow him and we don't follow anybody else or any other voices. We follow him and him alone. And he takes care of us. He lays down his life for us. And so God is with us. Emmanuel. Um, That's the reason that Jesus came. And that's who he is to you and I. Uh, Jesus is God with us. How long is he with us? I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
God says. And Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 28, he says, I, my, my goal, my purpose in calling you is so that you can go into all the world and make disciples. Um, not just converts, but disciples. Making disciples means that there's a commitment that the evangelist has. It's not just bringing them to birth. Uh, after the birth comes the life, and they need shepherding and guiding, and there needs to be interaction. There needs to be communion and fellowship. There needs to be correction. There needs to be rejoicing together. There needs to be affirmation. There needs to be all of these things. That's what part of discipleship is all about. And how are they going to do that? Where, where are they going to get the resources, the strength, the anointing to do that? I'm with you always, even to the ends of the ages. So Jesus says, you are to go, but you don't ever go alone. You are to be, but you're never isolated and abandoned. The promise of God is with us. And that's the, that's the repeated phrase three times, chapter 46 of the Psalms, verse 1, verse 7, verse 11. Um, the God of hosts is with us. And so we are not alone. He demonstrated that as the shepherd, he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And he did, didn't he? He did that. God is with us. He's with us to one who is to, to literally give everything there is to give. And he invites us to enter into that giving, everything, everything, everything you are, everything you have, everything you hope to be. And that's what he's inviting us to share. And when we do that, that's when we're, as Jeremiah says, seeking the Lord with all of our heart. Oftentimes we seek him with a little bit of it and we wonder why things don't change. You shall seek and you shall find me when you search for me with all your heart. Nothing held back. So Jesus led, led us and he showed us the way and he invites us to come and share with that. So again, um, this morning, as we do every Sunday, we have communion. There'll be people over here to pray with you if you'd like someone to pray with you. And again, if you have a, a, a call to prayer or intercession, uh, let Norm know because we want to have people on either side so people have access if they want someone to pray with them. And so if you feel a, a calling to that ministry, uh, get with Norm and we can sure put that into practice. Also, uh, our church believes in open communion, so anyone that's here today is welcome to come and participate. Uh, you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to... Uh, all, if you can in, answer the invitation that Jesus gives, uh, that's all you need to answer. Um, all the men in that upper room were, were sinners, just like the rest of us, sinners saved by grace. The only difference between us and them is the presence of Jesus Christ. But he makes a big difference. He makes a big difference. But all are welcome at this table. So if the laying down of his life, he prefigured in that dinner. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. 
It's the bread of life. After supper, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of sins. It's a cup of a new relationship with God. And he invites us to come and to share. So will those who are serving communion, please come forward.